The following program features language some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Just a, a, an unknown DJ and suddenly you've got this video that millions of people are watching. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, uh, so I get featured on there. Then I get an email to say, oh, Comic-Con in LA have just played your video live on a massive screen in the, in the Comic-Con. And that's <laughs> bloody hell. Um, and it's, it was my, I was just getting... I was quite active online in forums and stuff, just talking about DJing and music and whatnot. And I was suddenly getting people saying, you're the guy that done the video. Um, you're the same DJ Caltech. And, I was, and suddenly, you know, I could sense that this thing was getting really big. You are listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales, a podcast exploring the trails and untold tales of Welsh hip hop. My name is Luke Bailey and I'm a podcaster, best known for the Fly Fidelity podcast. And I'm talking to key players about the notable and nuanced evolution of Welsh hip hop history. Welcome to the program. On this episode, we're joined by award-winning music producer and former champion turntablist DJ Keltek. Enjoy the conversation. I'm DJ Caltech. Uh, my real name's Lloyd Morgan. Um, I got into hip hop, and my first exposure of it was when I was in school. So it would have been mid '80s. Um, I was played an electro tape, Street Sounds electro tape. It was a copy tape because we all used to like copy stuff for each other. Um, you know, I couldn't afford to go out and buy the tapes back then. So we'd we'd have. Um, tapes going around the school and um i heard this stuff and it was like oh, what, what what's it's like nothing i'd ever heard before um and it was like the electro stuff was sort of hip-hop beats as we know it uh but with more like electronic sounds and stuff into it and then so that would have been uh 85 86-ish um and then my mate gave me a copy of alal cool j's bad album on tape and it was it was the first um it was the first time i'd ever heard swearing on a tape because i think at the start the first uh, track he says motherfucker or something like that if i remember and i was like oh my god this is so exciting i can't make sure my mother doesn't hear this and uh yeah that was my first first exposure to hip-hop 
When it was dangerous, back when it was dangerous, right in its infancy, of course, did your parents understand this value of what you were being wrapped up in culturally? What was it your parents no, well, thought? Well, no one, no one really knew much about it then. It, it was, it was completely new because obviously yeah. you'd had. Um, I was a bit too young to be. Um, I'd heard the message track, um, but it wasn't really. Uh, um, you know, it was. It was not. It wasn't. We were, didn't have a radio one all the time and stuff. It, you wouldn't. You wouldn't hear it much. Um, so it was more. Um, it was like it, it was. Just, it was. I just remember being. It was so exciting. It was like oh, I got this. It was like naughty. You know what I mean? Um, to to have a a, a a tune with a bit of swearing on it. And this was before. It's it's, not, it's standard now. That you know, this was way before that, and. Um, I remember so how excited it was, and I had to play it quite quietly because um, I think it was the only bit of swearing on the whole album. Actually, it was right at the start, if I remember. Uh, I probably haven't listened to that for like twenty, thirty years. That album, but um, yeah, I, I just remember how, how good the album was, how creative it was as well, and yeah, I think he was the first rapper that I really got into. Hello, uh, Cool J, because then he went on to R and B and stuff, and I, I wasn't really into him then. Yeah, and I remember, I remember then because I was, I was on um, living in a, on a estate in St Mellons, and Johnny had it, uh, Johnny B had it then as well on vinyl, so I got to actually see the cover and stuff of it. Times have changed so much; people don't realise what it was like back then. There was no. You didn't. You didn't get exposed to anything. There was. You couldn't just go and like. Oh, let's go on Spotify. Let's go on the internet. There was none of that. It was like right. whatever you were exposed to by someone who had a tape, a copy the tape, and what was ever was literally physically handed to you, you. You weren't exposed to anything else. That that was it. So everything had a value to it. Um, mm. Like every song was precious. So whenever you'd get something a tape you'd listen to it over and over because you had, you couldn't fast forward anything or oh, i only like that track i'm gonna just listen to that over and over like you do now um yeah so it, everything had, had a, a lot of value and it was potluck really what was you were what you were exposed to um i remember i was desperate to try and get more hip-hop stuff but the only place i knew of at the time was going into town in cardiff town and going into hmv and um, and I remember going in there. I, I really had no money because I was live. It was a single single parent situation. My mother had no money, and um, and I didn't have a job because I was God. God, can't remember how old I was. Really young. And uh, I remember going in and buying um, a compilation on tape, uh, hip hop and rap in in the house. I think it was called. Um, it was one of those sort of commercial. Uh, well, I say commercial, it, it wasn't too bad. Uh, compilation albums. Um, and it had like Dougie Fresh on there, the show. Uh, oh, God. Uh, who else? Eric B and Rakim, uh, Move the Crowd. Um, oh, I can't remember now all the ones. But yeah, it was all our stuff from like sort of uh, mid to late 80s stuff. But yeah, it was, it was just so hard to get all the stuff. Mm. So it was... Uh, yeah, just make do with what you had and listen and just hopefully someone who had a tape would copy it for you because I didn't have a, a tape to tape deck for ages and ages. So I couldn't make my own copies. 
What was your sense of breaking and where it was going at that time? I, I, I can't break down to save my life um, <laughs> personally, but um, it would be, it was such, because Breakdance, the film had come out um, and in the mid eighties, every time you would come out of class, you would have someone with a piece of cardboard or lino coming out and breakdancing in, um, in the, in, in, in the corridors, basically, and getting told off for doing it because, it, you know, it was seen as, uh, I don't know, they didn't like it, did they, the teachers? Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, but I'd never saw the street snakes personally break in. Um, because I was sort of introduced to Johnny, well, we started talking, we realized we, for ages and ages, we didn't realize that we were both listening to similar stuff um, growing up. Because like I was hanging around with, he's, he's a few years younger than me. So I was hanging around with one bunch of lads and he was hanging around with another bunch. So uh, it wasn't until like we met later on, um, probably about 87, 88, so, oh, you listen to that as well, do you? I'll check this out. And, you know, we were swapping tapes and stuff. What do you think it was about hip-hop back then that captivated you so much to the point of participation? Was there a person or any catalyst that got you to actually want to DJ? Um, yeah, for definitely for um, once we realised that... Because I was, I was tinkering with making uh electronic music um and stuff and i'd always taken an interest um in sort of a technical side of things um and it, it wasn't until i think he lent me um jazzy jeff and the fresh prince's um he's a dj on the rapper album and we listened to it and it, it's a lot of live recordings on that album right and uh jazzy jeff is doing the transformer scratch and stuff like that and it was absolutely mind-blowing to me it was so exciting and, and johnny was it still is. Um, he, he reminded me of the Fresh Prince. He, he's got that sort of bubbly vibe and cheeky grin and stuff. Um, and it was it, that was basically the inspiration for us to get together. And that's 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 what I inspired to be like was uh, was those two. You know, before, this is way before Will Smith started going mainstream and stuff. You right. Know, um, yeah. So yeah, we really wanted to be uh, wanted to be those two, and just as well known as well. So your life ends up changing after connecting with Johnny B. What was it you remember? You know about meeting Johnny B for the first time. What was he like in those early days? Um, we just got on really well. We were just—he is very outgoing, an extrovert, and I'm the opposite. I'm an introvert. And we just we just work really well together. I'm in, in the background doing a technical side of things, and he likes to be up front um, doing his thing. Um, yeah, and it it, it it just works really well. Um, it, it, it's a, it was a great combination, and we, and we we just had a laugh all the time. That that was the main thing. I think it yeah. came through in some of the early work we did. Absolutely, work we did. You can just see that we're just having a laugh, and when we are on stage together, we we know each other's. We know each other so well that we would. It, it, everything would come naturally to us, you know. If if he yeah. wanted something done on stage, you know, like um, I don't know. If he point to something or just um, 
do something funny i just i would just know i'd just be able to read him like a book you know we just know each other so well and it, it just shone through and i think that's why we were quite successful um it, it was just quite natural it was a natural partnership i think when did you realize you had a bond outside of this tape you mentioned earlier of course by ll um yeah I, well I, I, yeah i saw his um i went down there and saw he had a massive record collection um, of vinyl huge huge collection of stuff stuff i'd never even seen before because you know i just didn't I, I i couldn't afford any vinyl back then um it was all it was all copied tapes but i remember i think we met down uh, in a park um just hanging about with mates and started chatting about music and he started rapping to me there and then doing a freestyle and uh it was like oh well you know i I, I can do, I, I'm, I'm into scratching the stuff, you know, do you want to draw me to do some things? Because I was watching the uh, World DMC Championships and things back then, in the sort of, uh, towards the late 80s. Um, and I said, you know, shall I, sh I, I've got, I've got these, you know, dodgy decks. Do you want, do you want to come up to, to my, my room, my bedroom and I'll, um, uh, you do some you do some rapping and I'll do some scratching and whatnot and uh that's that's where where it started and I was just scratching random things that I would find because I was buying lo lots of vinyl from car boot sales so I, you never knew what I you know I had all this random stuff nice um yeah and he would, he would have all the good instrumentals because he was he was really into it whenever you buy vinyl back then you'd always have an instrumental or an acapella on the b-side um that was a tradition for hip-hop then yeah um so yeah we'd stick an instrumental on and i would be scratching um trying to scratch anyway and then uh yeah he'd be rapping over it and well, i was gonna say we would just record it on the tape you know literally just put the uh the boom box on press record and it'd go through the mic and that was it that was like as technical as it got with the early recordings and that was the demos, of course, the Hillians hip hop album tape and a versatile hip hop album tape. Yeah, yeah, all that is it's, it's raw, you know, just um, yeah, it's just raw stuff, basically recordings. Because that, that, you know, it's it's times have changed so much where you can get a high quality. You could even do it on your phone now, high quality. We're we're talking like type one tapes back then. His, you know, hissing little crappy built-in mics on the the tape player. Um, yeah, it's it's a snapshot in time when you hear that type of stuff. Well, this is pre-Caltech and post-Underdogs, and you're both sort of at that crossroads creatively. What what was your experience like as DJ Moxie until that point? Um, well, I was doing a lot of. Um, drum and bass stuff well it was called hardcore back then but that then changed to a different sort of genre then but this is like um this is what what i've always called it drum and bass because that's the raw uh ingredients of it um but yeah i was working with there's another uh guy matthew um he went by the name of dj steady j um a really nice guy that i used to hang around with and um he, he was like technical like me, you know, um, slightly geeky sort of into the technical side of things. And um, I, I started learning to mix with him. So we would get by any old dance records, anything was in the, like the bargain, the bargain box in um, Spiller's records in Cardiff. Cause it was like a pound a record there and that's, you know, we didn't have any money. So um, we'd buy them and we would just do mixtapes. 
so like this is like 93 now um 92 93 and um yeah we started doing like mixtapes learning to mix um we didn't have proper decks with uh like technics have got a, a pitch control on it so you can speed up the record and slow it down back then you just had like you'd find um uh like a turntable from, from a charity shop or something something really cheap and obviously it was for a hi-fi so it had no um no speed control and it was all wobbly and stuff so we used to take them apart and fit a potentiometer to it there's like a variable resistor like a slider thing so we could do our own um mixing you know speed of the record up yeah slow it down so um we were both a bit technical like that we knew how to solder and a bit of electronic background so um we would uh we would do that and we would learn basically learn to mix on them and and then steady j was getting into scratching as well and we were both like doing some basic sort of uh baby scratches like do we do we you know all this type of stuff mm-hmm. and that's that's basically where it sort of stemmed from uh me djing and then getting more into the more technical side of that but i was going because my surname is morgan i was going by the nickname of Mogsy um in school so it was just like oh, go on and call me dj Mogsy. that'll do you know so we were um when we started buying proper like drum and bass records and we would um you know take our time and do work really hard on doing like our mixes recording them to uh um the c60 mm. and then um we'd put them we'd go around into town and put them in the uh well, what was it called now the shop that it was selling records and i can't remember but we'd do a sale or return on these tapes um because it was a big scene that the uh, drum and bass mix tapes normally they would be from raves and stuff uh but we would just do like studio mixes and then try and sell them in town um i can't remember the name of the shop now it's well known as well but um yeah so would any of your customers have been well known back then or today oh i I don't know uh i I don't know i don't know bought them yeah but um, they sell did you sell much yeah we sold them yeah um we did um i'm trying to think because the guy started he was i think his name was aaron and he was selling um he was under a stairwell set in town in one of the arcades selling mixtapes and that's where we first saw one of our tapes be sold we was we were there we'd put the tapes in we put five tapes in um with like they were sort of photocopied covers so it was you know it was quite it's quite raw it was so we stuck them in there and then a, a, a young customer came in asking you've got any what's the latest mixtape and we saw our first tape be sold in front of us and we were so we were giddy with excitement honestly it was it was crazy it was like gee we just actually sold something you know we're talking we're only talking a few quid here but it was just the fact that we had done something, spent so long on something, and then sold it. It was it was a right buzz. So you were really ahead of the curve early. Um, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was into it. It's like, yeah, I suppose. I suppose we were really distribution, yeah. right? So the years in nineteen ninety three. You talked about scratching. You talked about those early recordings and sessions with Johnny B. Yeah. Can you remember any of those beats that you were scratching to on those tapes with Johnny B? Uh, I, I don't remember the the names of them. I remember just some of the random stuff I was scratching on it. What we'd do, we'd sit down and 
Charlie's really good at this. He will go through records with a fine tooth comb looking for cuts and stuff uh, or little loops and whatnot. And he'd say, right, I've got loads of stuff here. I'll come around and you can scratch this and that. And I'm sure it'll fit there, he'd say. Mm-hmm. And um, and we'd basically get an acapella and he would have written some lyrics and we'd look for an acapella, uh, a cut, someone saying something which would fit into the chorus, make sense to what he was rapping about. Um, so that's generally how it worked. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it was, it, yeah, it, it worked really well because... It, when you when you're using cuts from things, you never know what you're going to find, and it, it can just it can just open up ideas right. uh, once you start you know using these um, samples and stuff, and then it just goes on for now. It's like oh that's good. Let's let's see if we can find something that works with that now, and then it would snowball from there. So how do you think those sessions developed your chemistry for the songs that you would later produce for his first album? Am I still hip hop? Yeah, well, we we got quite close because we were spending a lot of time in the studio. We were both really excited about doing this, and we would go down to um, his brother would uh, was really helpful, um, Gareth. He would um, he would book professional studios for us to go down to. So we had, it was our first experience of going down to proper studios where there's a, a producer there, and you go into a, a, um, one of these rooms which had no uh it was completely uh what's it called no reverb it was like a dead room for recording right and we, you know we're only teenagers uh, we're, you know we're quite and we're we're always always giggling and get being what you know it's a bit childish but we were just like just joking about a lot and um just being normal kids and uh yeah, yeah. and um so we got we got to sit down with a professional guy and he would do uh he would record the tracks at high quality. It would never, like nothing we'd ever seen before, you know, like crystal clear stuff. And we're talking like, it was early, mid-90s still. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we'd go down there and he'd help out. And he was a musician as well, so he knew um, if if the sample we were using was in a certain key or whatever or scale, he'd be able to play, he'd be able to freestyle over it, uh, playing a piano or whatever. Um, yeah, so that was, so we would spend a lot of time there. And then what I'd seen in that studio, I thought, right, this is what I need to do to my bedroom now. Um, so the way my bedroom was, it was L shaped and I had a little, like a five foot corridor, um, really, really thought small corridor where the door opened. So when you shut the door, you had this little space. So I used to hang up a curtain there and I'd, I went to the, um, this, carpet shop and bought all this like thick underlay which you normally have under the floor and I I put it all over the walls and so I made my own little dead room for wow. no, no reverb and and I'd lock I put Johnny in it and I'd put the curtain across and then I'd have my PC I think it was a PC I was using or an Amiga um in the in the in the corner and I'd say right put your headphones on press record all, all standard stuff now but this is this is back then. No, there's no no one to tell us what to do here. We're just like I've been to a studio once, seen seen what this guy's doing on a professional level. I'm going to try and copy it, um, and then yeah, stick Johnny in there, and we had some of the best laughs because it was just um, uh, it was just so funny. We just didn't stop laughing all the time. We were the chemistry between us. Um, and uh, and I haven't heard those those old tracks for a long time now. 
um, you know, you sort of you, you sort of forget about all this stuff, the the history of where where you've actually got to and where you, where you came from. I mean. And then it's Johnny B, Cardiff's longtime MC. Memories of recording demos with Keltec. It was back in 1993 when I teamed up with my longtime friend DJ Moxie, later known as Keltec. Uh, in the years prior to this, we'd lived on the same estate and, and, and around in the street with gangs of mutual friends of ours from St. Melons, Remy, and various other districts of Cardiff. Just, you know, messing around, get, getting up to no good, as, as kids do. Uh, during my childhood in the 80s, I'd always been rapping and recording demos and I, I heard Keltec had started making music too and, in, and I heard he'd built a bedroom studio and started producing his own beats so I, I knew he had a love for hip-hop so I reached out to him to see if he wanted to start jamming and making music. So we hooked up, we hit it off, we had loads of fun freestyling and recording, eventually recording demos and mixtapes on cassettes and, and playing a couple of parties along the way. Golden memories. Wicked times. Well, it's a pivotal album and it, it goes on to change the trajectory for hip hop in Wales during that time, as well as yours and Johnny B's reputation. How did it feel being a part of an album that was dubbed as the first proper hip hop LP to come from Cardiff? Yeah, well, at the time, you don't really, it's not really something that you, you're thinking about. You're not conscious of that when, you, when you're doing it. Um, but when you look back, it, it it's quite amazing what um, you know. It, it's 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 amazing to be part of uh, sort of history where it started. Um, yeah, because at, at the time I was um, I was still quite involved with the um, the drum and bass scene. I was trying to make it as a drum and bass DJ, and I was doing a lot of producing, and I was sending out my demo tapes to record labels all the time and um uh, and and i was i was struggling a bit with that because it, it wasn't the drum and bass scene at the time was sort of it was quite tight and if if you didn't know anyone it was hard to get into so johnny was asking me to do more stuff producing and i could see the welsh hip-hop scene was you know um starting starting to grow and it felt like more of a family type of thing because you had um, people like Captain and Dregs and Rough Styles and that running the uh, higher learning nights. And mm -hmm. me and Johnny were getting asked to do a lot of gigs in places like, um, we, we, I think back then, what was it, what was it before that? Oh, it's such a long time ago. It's hard for me to remember all this. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's... it's uh, <laughs> a lot of water under the bridge has gone by since then. The the beats I was making for Johnny at the time, I was using drum and bass. Well, no, they were they were originally jazz uh, beats and soul beats and stuff, but they were. Um, they, I was sampling because of the records I had, which was drum and bass. I was half timing everything, so I was getting a beat loop and slowing it down. And um, I think on that album, a lot of my stuff. A lot of the beats I was making, I was using drum and bass stuff, which was um, I'd slow down the tempo of it and make it into a hip hop beat. I'd cut it up and remix it basically into a hip hop beat. And that that was the style 
of the um, the tracks I was making. If I remember, it's been so long since I've heard these uh, these tracks. Um, I should I should have listened to them actually before this interview, so I could remember and I could tell you exactly what I did on them. But yeah, that's what I was doing, and that's basically when it started leading on to the Rhyme Hungry EP. Um, a lot of those beats are slowed down drum and bass beats. So when you think about the title of Johnny B's debut, Am I Still Hip Hop, knowing how much authenticity was placed on hip hop during that time, did you ever feel boxed in, pivoting between producing drum and bass and hip hop? Yeah, but the the thing is, I always felt a bit... um conscious about right what 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 where is my loyalty here am i am i a hip-hop dj or am i a drum and bass dj or am i just like um a producer that can do you know is into different things and it's always been a bit of a like uh identity crisis there really yeah because i don't know i just felt like um i i had to be so, all something and not a bit, a bit of everything. Do you know what I mean? Like I yeah. had to be, I, I'm just a hip hop DJ and this is all I'm going to do. And, and, and I was a bit like, I was a bit sort of like that when I was um, younger anyway, I, I can't possibly listen to anything else. It's got, it's got to be this, you know, it's, it's too uncool to listen to more than one thing, uh, which was, you know, my childish sort of side of uh, music. But um, yeah, so I sort of thought, um, I was at a bit of identity crisis. So when I did sort of, I got, you know, when you're trying to force something, I really wanted to be like this big superstar drum and bass DJ, like with doing massive raves because I was going to raves and stuff at the time. Where were you going back then? Oh, it was mainly um, like down to Porth Call. There was a few like uh, big raves down there. And then, Illegal um, raves? I've been to a few of them, yeah. Um, uh, mainly the one we used to go to was a place called The Bunker in Newport. It's on Stowe Hill. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I was I was going there, but um, and and that's, that was what was inspiring me was going to these clubs and hearing these these such big epic beats. Right. Um, you know, obviously sped up for drum and bass, but they were like I'd I've I'd have the the best music buzzes, some of the best music buzzes I've ever experienced in my life. You know, with with that type of uh, sort of dark heavy sound, and. Um, yeah, and then um, I, I sort of felt a bit rejected after all the hard work I put into releasing drum and bass records and whatnot. And so he was like, it just—it was so natural to get into hip hop. And though remember, I'd always been listening to hip hop. It was just I'd gone on to drum and bass because it was like the natural progression. Right. It, it became a bit trendy. Um, so I was sort of going back to where I started. Basically, that's how that's how I sort of felt. But um, I still had I still had this like oh am I am I a hip hop DJ or am I a drum bass DJ and I thought right I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to hip hop now I'm obviously quite good at it because people like, like Johnny and whoever's listening to it is enjoying it so I must it must be more naturally what I'm better at doing so right I'm gonna stick to that um, and and that's sort of uh, what happened and I put a lot of effort then into making stuff for Johnny all the time and yeah and it, it, it just naturally worked our relationship and people 
we were starting to get the name was starting to grow then um, on the Welsh hip hop scene. But at the time, like going back to the original question, I I, I didn't realise how much we were um, at the forefront of Welsh hip hop. Interesting. Yeah, and I I think um, you know Johnny alongside Dregs, Captain. I've got a lot to, you know, they're the reason for it. Because, you know, I could I could be in my bedroom all day long before the internet, you know, making beats and whatnot. And if nobody's there to push you out into the front, yeah, it, it, you're not going to get well known for it. My name's Soph, uh, formerly MC Little Miss and manager around records. I can remember releasing Johnny's uh, album, Rhyme Hungry, and it was the first one of the albums that was released where it was purely a service being undertaken for the, for the, for the band at that time. Johnny was incredibly enthusiastic and really, really hungry for that release to be out. And my my main memories of it is just getting badgered by him on the daily to try and get stuff done. But um, Johnny is one of those characters that jumps in and out of your life at different stages, and he's always on it. He's always got that thirst and that hunger. So it was an entirely appropriate title for him. Um, and I, you know, as a fan, I guess I admire the amount of effort he puts into his albums um, and it's that kind of dedication that keeps the hip-hop scene moving and flowing so prolifically in the city it needs that level of hunger from people to sustain it and to keep the vibe going You end up releasing Pyroplastic Flow shortly after, which sort of becomes a prototype for your style and process in terms of you subverting drum and bass and making traditional hip-hop, like you said. Can you maybe talk a bit about that process, putting that together? Yeah. What were you using? Because basically I I had um, all these beats I'd made, which were, again, my my thing was slowing down... um, sort of drum and bass beats to make them into more of a hip-hop flow and a hip-hop tempo. Right. Um, and I had a load of a load of instrumentals and I was scratching and I thought, right, well, I'm doing live stuff here with Johnny and doing live gigs. Um, I've got all these instrumentals I've written for him. I'm going to put it, I'm going to just press, um, press a 12 inch and I'm going to put all the cuts that can come in handy for me and other DJs on there. So it became like a DJ tool, basically pyroplastic, uh, breaks um yeah and that's that's what it was but the stuff i was back then i was producing um all the beats with i had um a little sampler which was made by a company called emu and it was esi32 and it was like four meg i think of memory which is like 30 seconds or maybe a minute maximum sampling um so it was it, 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 the the amount of work that went into trying to make beats back then with just a sampler and a keyboard to trigger the samples 
um, uh, connected to a PC, which would just record uh, the MIDI and uh, the MIDI um, signals to trigger the sampler, and that was all done basically with that. All those those tracks. Nice. And, yeah, it, it was. It, it's really. It was really tough back then, and everything would take take hours and hours to do it i i see it like trying to wallpaper through a letterbox it's it's like you've got a little tiny little screen which is like one inch uh, high and a two inches wide and you're using a dial to just put in information and oh it was painful really painful but but what that does it makes the sound have a certain identity and character because of the way you have to produce and yeah and that was that was the result all those tracks and Pyroplastic Records was my the name of my label. Um, I, I should have said that. Um, so yeah, it was just uh, everything's pyroplastic then. Um, and I can't remember if I was. I'm not sure if I was going under the name DJ Moxie still then for that. Uh, definitely not for. Oh no, it would have been Caltech. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it would have been Caltech um, because yeah, if I was doing. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I did. Pyroplastic Flow is my debut release on um, on my label, which I tried. I tried to get the twelve inch, which I tried to get distributed, and it did okay. It was still still hard to get people to buy records back then um, if you're unknown. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what that was. Um, Got it. Yeah, and then Pyroplastic Breaks was. That was the pivotal moment when I was moving more into hip hop, and the reviews. That's right. I remember now. The reviews were saying, one review was like, "Oh, he's he's far better at producing hip hop than he is drum and bass." And I was like, "Oh, cheers." <laughs> but, <that's, laughs> but you know, if that's what it, if that's the truth, then you know, um, yeah. So that yeah, the, so Pipe Plastic Breaks was the. Um, the movement into my style of producing hip hop. And then from then on, I think mainly I was producing, I was producing less drum and bass stuff and it was more going into hip hop. So we were talking early 2000s now. And of course you're building a name, you're both building a name. What's the story behind the name? Caltech and Johnny B's the name, which completely changes everything, not just for yourselves, but again, for the landscape locally, as well as the rest of the UK, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's a big, that's a big, um, it's a big that, album. Yeah, it was a pivotal album. So I had been listening to, um, I was getting influenced by lots of things. So there was, um, cause it's, very, it's quite different to the Rhyme Hungry EP. Yeah um in in character um we we me and johnny were more like we knew each other better at this stage and you know we're like brothers basically and um we'd say it like it is in the studio you know if that's a good take no it's not you know it was no airs and graces it was just like we what we, we you know we we just say it like it is mm. um and I, we wanted basically to we could, we were getting quite a lot of momentum now. We wanted to push this right we uh, and see if we can get as big as possible with it. And we're going to push a sound. I want my sound to be as polished as it can be. So I'm going to start working really hard on trying to learn to mix. I had no no knowledge of mixing. How hard um, 
how to mix properly or anything uh, in a studio. I don't mean DJ. In, I mean, in a studio. Like, and um, and th- there are tricks you need to know to get a good sound. And um, there was no YouTube or anything to learn from or no books or whatever. And, and if you if you wanted to learn how to mix in a studio, you had to do basically go to a professional studio, hang about there and learn to mix. And I, I, well, that wasn't an opportunity, uh, like an option for me. And um, so I wanted to push the sound to be as polished as possible. Um, so I used to spend a lot of time working in the background, try, trying to get this big sound. I had listened to um, a track by a drum and bass producer called Adam F, who collaborated with Redman, uh, called Smash Something. Mm. And that was, that was so pivotal in my production. Uh, it, it, it was a key moment for me when I heard that, because the sound was so big. He, he had just he had sampled um, or got maybe got a choir. I don't know if he sampled it, but he had a big choir on it. It was moving into like that classical sort of huge epic sound that you hear on trailer music. Um, mm. that, some people say it's over the top, but I was so inspired by it because um, it was like, like sort of that, that massive sound that I loved. And it, it's, you'd, I'd, I'd hear it in a club and I'd, I'd have goosebumps because it was so big and marauding and I'd had, I'd been using um, that track in some of my DJ sets that I started to dabble with. Um, so, uh, so the name album, I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to get one of these, uh, I'm going to get a classical sample library from, um, it was, it was a company called Time and Space. They're still going and they, they make sample CDs back then for producers um and so i got this uh, i think it was like classical something or other and it just had samples of like um all classical instruments like uh string section brass um uh, and choirs and whatnot and i basically wanted to make a big epic sound like that which was the name album and i i remember i said johnny i've written a track i don't know i don't know if you're gonna like it or whatever because it's very different from anything else we've done at the time and um and he he, he was absolutely buzzing when he heard it because it was so it was so big um and then I, I remember we played it in a club it was a toucan club and it's got a long intro it builds um with this choir sound mm-hmm. um before the beat drops and it's a it's a big it's a big heavy beat and um I remember we, we started the track and everyone is like looking around because it's like, it's quite quiet at the start and it, it, re- it really builds. And I just remember everyone's jaw dropping as the, the sound started building into this massive, I mean, I'm saying I'm using a timpani or something, which is like uh, on a roll coming in and it goes boom, boom, you know, the, the beat comes in. Right. And I remember uh, it just went off in the club and, um, and people hadn't heard anything like it at the time. And I was—I remember Jaffa coming up to me, and he said, "I was at the bar, and I could hear this noise." And I was like, "What the f is that?" And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "I was, I was buzzing, I was," because it really like—it it was like a pivotal moment for me that yeah. um, we'd made something that because uh, Johnny Johnny's lyrics and his the way he raps on it is brilliant, really, really, you know, it's really aggressive. Um, yeah, it's a power. Within yes. That. Yeah, and you, you 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 know you get caught up in it, and it's yeah, yeah it's, it's cool, and um, 
Yeah, and I just remember that that was it was a big moment, and it, we we were talked about after that for quite a bit of the time, you know, for that uh, for that track. Media hype, making me hungry and creative. Can I live up to the name? Can I deliver the goods? You can ask any hip hop head and cat of city suburbs. I feel a lucky man. People were buying the records and shouting the name. Local fame, God bless, I take aim. Up the whole world, the whole bleeding spectrum. This cat's a vegan veteran, venom inject them. I bet them. Snakes who stab me in the back back in the day. I'm licking up their own words as they flick through papers and magazines and read the name. Hear stories of how I brought fury to an open mic. With a freestyle mode, local insanity, clatter, he spoke and right. Tonight, I introduce you to. Caltech, so respect the producer and the DJ from back in the day. You felt that. Am I still hip hop CD? Rhyme hungry EP. Who the bloody hell do you think cooked up the beats for me? Against all odds, against the grain. The whole world will remember the name. Against all odds, against the grain. The whole world will remember the name. Against all odds, against the grain. The whole world will remember the name. Straight from South Wales. I think we sort of wanted to make a statement that we're here and this, this is Welsh hip hop. And, um, I think it's right. This is us. This is Caltech and Johnny B. This is the name. Remember the name. And that right. was, uh, uh, yeah. And that was cause it was such a big, it was such a big intro track and it was a signature tune basically. Um, yeah. And so, uh, it, it was a big, uh, that was, that was a big, big track. That was a really, really put us on the map when people heard that. It did. It did. You talked about mixing and how big of a role mixing played on this album for you in terms of learning. Do you yeah. have any opinions on why mastering is the last and arguably least understood step in the recording process when it comes to hip hop specifically? Yeah, because at the time when I was working on this, the, the only album I had to go on, which was groundbreaking, was Dr. Dre's, I think, 2001 all his stuff was really good, even f like the chronic stuff. But um, his loudness levels were like it was it was unbelievable compared to everyone else. And the, it was basically the loudness was for mixing. Yeah, uh, it was the peak of that then, and um, that was the benchmark that I was trying trying to get to um, f for loudness. What what mastering basically. Um, is once you've mixed everything, the mastering is making sure that the the mix will work on multiple um, devices. Now, anyway, back then it, you didn't have multiple devices. You weren't listening to stuff on your phone, which I think is tragic. Really, listening to stuff on your phone after you know you've spent so much time with proper speakers 
back then you had a proper hi-fi system at home or you were listening on um, headphones at, at the worst case scenario, which is still still good. Um, but yeah, master engineer will push stuff to the, to the maximum. You will add that. You will add that sort of extra um, polish polishness to the track, uh, making sure that you know it's a full frequency of sound you're hearing. Um, what, mixing stage, you know, I didn't when I couldn't really master stuff to a, a professional level because I didn't know how to uh, back then. Uh, so. You know, I, I did the best I could uh, with with the the small knowledge I had. I I worked so hard in the studio. I, I was I was just worn out on that album. I was literally spending hours every single day um, just trying to get it. Just trial and error. You're just learning. Um, you're just learning by yourself. It's like what works, what doesn't work. Um, I, I, my ears are so fatigued. I mean, uh, after like four or five hours of constantly listening to music. Right. Um, you, you know, you don't, you get to a stage where you, you don't know, is, is this right now? Is this too bassy? Is it, is it too crispy? You know, and I've taken too much bass out of it. Um, yeah. You get so fatigued after a while that you just don't know where you are. And in hindsight, what I should have done is spend a few hours on it, had a good rest and then come back to it. But I'm like a dog with a bone when I get into something and I'm just like, right, I've, I've got to do it. I've got to, I've got to get this right. And uh, I'd set, uh, give, give it to Johnny then, and he'd take it into his car, and he'd come back, right, oh, oh not sure about the bass. It might be a bit bassy, this. Let's, let's do this and that. And yeah, but, uh, yeah, I wish I had a, mass, a proper mastering engineer to, or even someone to mix it. That would have been great. Because um, I look back now compared to what I can do now, and it's not as good as I can do now, but then... I'm very proud of what I did and it's a snapshot in time of what was available, what tools I had then. And that's it. And it's, you know, it's got its character and its sound. Do you hear anything now in those beats that stand out for you about that album specifically? It's just different. It's, it's basically yeah. though that that's a snapshot of it's what snapshot. I wanted. Yeah. Of what I wanted to do then and what I could do basically. Um, yeah, I, I I could criticize myself all day long, and I do all the time when I'm doing stuff. I'm I'm the, my worst critic. I'm never happy. I'll, I'll take perfection to a to a new level when I come to making things, because everything I do, it's got to be either different from what I've done before, or I've got to take it up a, a notch in either engineering or production level. Uh, and I've always been like that with all the stuff I do, and I I produce a lot of music. I've always got to take it to another level so in the first the first track on the album I, I don't know which what order i did it and i think i might have done the, the signature tune first um but then you know next one is like right it's got to be different or it's got to be better than the last mm. and that's the way I, I always work with everything i do i'm terry cooper formerly known as rapster t from the group best shot I first heard of Caltech when he and Johnny B contacted me to commission me for some artwork for their upcoming 2003 LP, The Name. I hadn't been involved in the Cardiff rap scene for a couple of years, so it was kind of a surprise to hear from them, but I had heard of a couple of Johnny's songs before, and I really liked his stuff. Since then, I've done a number of design jobs for them over the years, such as the Dreamweaver EP and a couple of Johnny B single releases and his logos. As for Caltech... 
He's one of the small number of Welsh DJs whose names keep cropping up in terms of popularity. Of course, you've got the mighty Jaffa sitting on the throne, but while there are many notable Cardiff and Wales-based MCs, there aren't that many recognisable names when it comes to DJs. But like I say, Caltech is right up there. He's got a scarily impressive body of work. He's so much more than a scratch DJ with his past experiments in drum and bass, EDM and viral videos. He's also a producer and a composer in his own right. So he kind of does a bit of everything. Recently moving into film scoring, synthwave, and I hear he plays a mean cello. I was really keen to work with him, so as I've got my second feature film coming up, I decided, yeah, he's the perfect guy to score it. My film is a horror comedy, and I wanted a retro kind of VHS-era score, like you'd hear on a John Carpenter film. And, you know, Caltech's just a perfect fit for that. We share the same love for those 80s movies, dark synth stuff, and of course big beats, so, you know, I'm just super stoked to finally hear what he's going to come up with. Pretty sure that he's going to move into much bigger circles in film scoring before too long. Talent like that speaks for itself. He's already in demand for his composing, and I'll be the least surprised person if his name pops up on a Hollywood movie's credits in the near future. It's an absolute certainty in my mind. We were doing more gigs, and my name was starting. Me and Johnny were starting to get more, more, um, uh, more of a name. And I was like, right, I've obviously got to start polishing up now my skills. Um, so I, I was concentrating hours and hours a day on trying to get better at doing uh, scratching and whatnot, and just listening to mixtapes and uh, whatever source I could find to uh, try and copy the techniques I was hearing. Then. Um, then in, uh, it would have been the early 2000s, where we're now um, getting a big name for ourselves. Um, I, I started, and it was YouTube one about then, but it was, Cubert uh, had brought out a DIY um, How to Scratch DVD. Yeah which uh, someone had, and I, I watched it. But he, he scratches with his left hand on the deck, and he scratches hamster style, I think it's called now. I can't remember now. Uh, but, yeah, so he, he's opposite on his fader. So you can't just I, – I, I'm old school, so I'm right hand on the, the turntable and left hand on a fader, and I'm opening the fader by moving it right towards the record. So I'm completely opposite from what he's doing. So I couldn't – like look at him and think, oh, let's uh, let's let's slow the play the tape, and then copy his movements. I couldn't do that. So, right, but right. he was, but because he's such a genius, um, he was showing scratching and names of scratches, which was all like, what's this? What's this called? And a flare and all this thing. And I was like, whoa! I'd only ever heard Jazzy Jeff on tape. I'd never seen him do his transformer scratch. And all these things he was doing back in like '88 or whatever it was, so um, I, I, you know, he was my inspiration, but I, I couldn't actually see what they were doing, and I didn't know there was names really for everything. So yeah, I started knuckling down, and I thought, right, well, this is uh, this is we're getting a big name now. I've got to be able to be as good as Johnny is up front. I've got to be as good at the back, and then. I got better at it and I was doing more um, beat juggling and uh, proper like DMC tricks and that because I was starting to then slowly get into entering uh, competitions. 
Yeah, I wanted to get better anyway. So then when we were doing our live sets, I'd have my moment in the, the limelight as doing like Johnny would say, right, over to you. And I do do a little mini routine, you know, or do some scratching or whatever. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I just I was just thinking then of the chemistry when Johnny would point at me and I'd be scratching and stuff. It was, it was, it was amazing. It was. Well, you talked about the DMC DJ championships. What did it mean to be representing Wales in a regional heat back then? Yeah, because that that was I didn't realise at the time because so I've been I'd been watching this thing all my life uh since the late eighties and I was and to me it was a massive competition and it was like, Well, this is even though it's the regional, you go in there and you to the UK final and to me it was like the it, it's it's the World Cup basically of DJing and um mm. Uh, they had, had announced that they, it was 2003, they had announced that they were coming to Cardiff for a regional um, uh, final. You're allowed to enter two per year, so it starts in May, and you're allowed to enter um, two competitions a year. So I was like, right, I, I'm going to put a set together now. I, th- I think it was three minutes a set. It's got to be on a Technics uh, mixer, you're not allowed to use any other mixer. It's got to be their 1200 mixer, I think it's called. It's got, I can't remember now the model, but you had to use their mixer and two Technics decks, um, and you're not allowed to use anything else. That's it. Um, so I put I put put a set together. Um, didn't realize when I got to the club. I think it was Club Eiferbach. We were the actual thing was held that year. Um, I didn't realize I was possibly the only Welsh DJ there. It might have been someone else, but I, I don't remember now, but I think I w- was the only Welsh one. Because what happens is everybody comes from England uh, to to enter it. Right. Which was a, I, it was new. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, so then I, I get really nervous before performing. And I don't think I'd done this set in front of anybody before. So um, I come up with this three-minute set, went there. S4C or someone were there filming at the time because they were asking if I could uh, speak Welsh to the to the camera, and I and I wasn't I wasn't very good at speaking Welsh back then. Anyway, so I, I went up on stage, really nervous. Shit, literally, you get like um, you're trying to put your needles down, and your hands are physically shaking. You can't help yourself. You, it's, that's what it's like if you get really nervous uh, with this. And um, yeah, I did my set, and then they basically announce who's going to go into the final in the night. And like I'm stood there uh, after doing my thing. I think right. I made a load of mistakes. I don't know. Uh, and then um, I didn't get I didn't get picked, so I was absolutely gutted. I you know I spent weeks and weeks learning this set um practicing and practicing and then um they said uh, uh so that's so as that i was it i thought right game over let's go next year so i looked at the the poster and they said there's a the regional final in glasgow then uh a week later and i was like oh glasgow it's not exactly next door so um so sod it. I'm, I'm going to go for it. I really, this is, I want this more than anything. You know, I really want to be in a final. I'd love to be in the UK final because it was the, it was um, only the top two people in the final in the night actually goes through to the UK final in London. Got so um, I think the reason for my nerves 
going back a bit was because I'd watched this all my life and it was such a big thing for me. All the younger people that weren't, they were half my age. I, I think I was like 30, 33 maybe at the time. Right. I can't remember. I can't even work out what it is. Anyway, they were all like 19-year-olds, 18-year-olds and that. And it didn't, you know, to them, it was just a competition. And so I guess they may not have been as nervous as me. So, um, Did you, in your heart, expect to win back then? No, no, no. I just desperately wanted to get through to the final. Okay. No, I knew I knew I won won good enough. Uh, I, I, you know, I was doing what I, my best. But anyway, so right. a week later, I thought, right, I'm gonna. I drove up to Glasgow. It took eight hours, give or take. Um, and um, I literally got there, arrived in Glasgow about half an hour before I was due on. And are you less nervous at this point? How are you feeling yeah, at this point? I've got nothing to lose. I've already lost once. Right. I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to go for it. And um, it was it was held in the art centre, which is quite famous in Glasgow, but I think it's burnt down now or something. Um, went up there, um, did my set, and um, got through to the final, and I was on cloud nine. I couldn't believe it that I'd actually nice. made it. And um, oh, I was buzzing. And then... Um, I had the actual final end in the night, so I just kill a few hours and then uh, go on stage. But the cr- crowd, there was about a thousand people there. It was massive. I'd, I'd never played in front of so many people, and they were bouncing off the walls. These people, I could have done anything up there. They were just going mental. <laughs> it was amazing. And part of my set was playing the Ghostbusters theme tune and um, the Ray Parker Jr. instrumental, and I was scratching over it and doing, I don't know, something something or other but um love that yeah love and that. I, um yeah and it was it, it, it was like an out-of-body experience it was so such a buzz up there with so many people going mental and i had people coming up to me afterwards like shaking my hand and that and um yeah it was incredible i don't know what i finished in the end i, I wasn't in the top two but um yeah um yeah i got it so so yeah i did that brilliant really gave me confidence and that helped then when I was doing set with Johnny I could do some of my routine and uh whatnot and then there from then on I started uh, the next year I'd prepare another set and um did another uh where did I go then I think I did Manchester uh I got through to the I, I from then on I I did it six times in all but I I'd always qualify for the uh, for the final in, in the end um, in the night the regional final in the night so I I'd gone to Manchester um, oh, I can't remember the places I played now that uh, was Manchester yeah it was cool it, it was bouncing in that place but again I was really nervous I travelled up. Johnny was with me and I don't know, I just got really nervous and I started getting shaky hands and set started falling apart a bit, um, which is very, it's very, in the heat of the moment, these things can happen. Um, I can imagine. I can imagine yeah. that being common. You're not the only one, of course. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, it happens to it happens to everyone. The more you do it, the better you get at it. But because sure. you're only doing it like twice a year. Um, yeah. Uh, so... With that being said, what was your practice regime like between those years? You know, between 2003 and 2005, what were those days like as a growing period for you going into these contests? 
Yeah, so I would bas- I basically, this is when I bought um, a camera, uh, a digital, uh, they were, you'd record onto little sort of digital tapes back then. Um, yeah, so I'd get, uh, I'd get a camera and um, I'd film, I've got hours and hours of me filming different sets I'm doing um, in my bedroom. And that, I, I, do, I do that all the time. I think I'd entered Cardiff and uh, Bath, Manchester, and a few other places. Right. Um, and then it got to, I, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd do my routines and I would criticize myself, right? It's a bit, it's a bit slow there. People are going to get bored. Let's, let's cut it a bit. So you've got to fit it into three minutes. You've got to make it interesting and whatnot. And um, then um, I, I did, um, I won't get onto the video quite yet, but um, I remember doing playing in Cardiff. They they changed the rules for some reason back in two thousand and four, whatever it was, three maybe. Um, about no two thousand and four would have been about the. It's only the first person goes through to the uh, the London final, the UK final. Then, so I had a higher bar to reach, so I had to then get to. Um, uh, I had to be, I had to be first. I had to win the night, basically, to get to the London final. No pressure. Yeah. So it wasn't it, before. It was second place would have done. So the Cardiff final, um, which people will remember, um, I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I played. Uh, I, I I did a I did a set. That just, it just went off. It did. Um, a really good set, and I played the can can at the end. It's it's on <laughs> it's on YouTube, but I was scratching the 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 and I would be scratching the 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 melody, um, mm. and the crowd absolutely blew up. And that night, I I came second, and I, I won some prizes and stuff. And uh, but they changed the rules, so I didn't get I didn't make it to the mm. to London. So I was picketed about that. So had those rules been different, you would have been going to London. Yeah, but if I had gone to London, this is where you've got to be careful what you wish for. Because I then the next year I went to Bath, and in again in the final, and I did the Darth Vader, um, the video I'm most known for, the Empire Strikes Back remix. And if I had gone to London, I may not have done that. So, um, yeah, which put me put me on the map that the uh, video did. It did. Talk to me, backing up for a minute, talk to me about the importance of striking a balance between technicality and musicality in a yeah. sense. And, you know, maintaining a routine based on both skill and style. Yeah, that, that, that is, that's a massive thing. So what was happening with Scratching at the time was it was getting so technical, it was losing its musicality. Mm. And I, I, I did fall victim to that. I was so obsessed with the technical side of things, how difficult it is to pull off. Um, and you forget, like, hang on, I meant to, it's really, I meant to be doing a mix here, making it musical and, and you know, and, and good at the same time. And I, I started getting, I felt personally, I started getting too technical and too focused on the skills, how hard it is to do these tricks that like musicality starts slightly slipping away. Um, yeah. And, and I, that was a trend that got into scratching. It got so technical and I don't know where it is today. Technicality wise. Um, it's obviously more technical and skillful now, but right. 
um, I think people have possibly realised it's still got to be musical, and and that's the most. And to me, that is the most important thing is is musicality now. And back then, I was like, oh, it's so difficult to pull this off. The judges will love this because I'm doing this and that with you know within this time frame, and right. it's so hard to do. And they all know that. But I'm f- you forgetting it. Hang on, there's a crowd out there. They're meant to be enjoying this, and I'm just doing great crazy things like <laughs> which is incredible to half a crowd but maybe not all of the crowd yeah yeah it, of course some people would be there like wow that's good and then others would be like right what's he doing up there this this is this is not even like musical at all it's just a noise Hi there, this is DJ Cutmaster Swift, the 1989 DMC World Champion, host, uh, common, and also judge. And it's through judging the DMC heats that brought me around the country. And Keltec, again, the potential, it's always the potential of somebody that grabs your attention. You're like, hmm, that guy's got something. There's something unique about him. There's something different about him. And it's, it's identifying that someone is that, that basically, you know, you know what, I'm looking out for this person on my radar, he's going to appear, he's going to be about. Within the DMC Championship, it's very hard to, to really know what everyone's about and, and their full potential because everyone's nervous, you know, it's, it's competitive, you know, there's only certain people can qualify, but people like Keltec qualified quite easy in the final and then you then you start realizing their reputation from the audience how they respond to them so this is the local guy okay this this guy's got a little bit of a crowd here interesting so yeah i i haven't really conversed with keltec as much as i would have possibly liked to because of probably the timing of things you know what i mean when i'm packing away the set he's probably grabbed his prize and disappeared out the door <laughs> but yeah, um, pleasant guy, you know, knows what he's, he's about. Um, and what more can you ask? That's 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 what it's about. Leaving your mark. Could you give me an example of a time where you outfought your competition and defied expectations creatively? Yeah, um, like. <laughs> there's two types of battling back back then um you've got battling where you do one minute each and then you get judged and you go through another round or you do your whole set uh for three minutes and you get judged overall so like the a supremacy type battling is where you do one minute and then they'll come up with some tricks and you've got to try and match it a bit, bit like a bit like battling you know on a mic um same concept but it's quite hard. And I remember that I did the higher learning um, DJ competition, which I, I won in the end. Um, but you've got to literally think on your feet then and come up with something, a little routine, which is sounds better or could be technically better than what the last guy did. But I remember um, um, I'm, 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 I'm always like, I'm a creative person anyway, whatever I do. And I was always looking for crazy ideas and things that people wouldn't have come up with and thought of, even though it's, it's a bit gimmicky. Um, so I had a record 
that added some cuts on it and I deliberately burnt massive holes in the record and destroyed it. So when I lifted it up to show the crowd, it was it was a record with just all with very little bits for the needle to go on. So I would put it on for a cut and I couldn't play the whole record because it would hit the holes. So I had to pl- I had to play it and scratch, making sure I would only use a little little parts of it. Um, which like if people were looking at me like I had two heads. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> How do you one. do that? How do you go about doing that? That's I, a challenge, I, surely. Yeah, basically, I was putting um, I was using stickers on there, right? Which I would know where to where to land needle drop onto it because when you put the needle down the sticker will if you put it at a slight angle you can put it down in such a way that it will fall into the right groove um but yeah that was that was quite challenging um uh what else i did so many weird things um yeah i think that that's probably the most outrageous one um the thing was with dmc sets it's not it's not like today where you've got digital serato where you can press a button and you're queued up you've got to find inventive ways to find where you need to be within under you know like five seconds or something Hmm. um so all, all my records had stickers on them so i could find find where i was straight away i don't know how many other people were doing that um probably they probably were doing it but i wasn't paying attention because i started doing it for the live shows i was doing with johnny c because i had to quickly find a cut in the records um straight away i didn't have time to like wind it around my finger ages and ages and listen to it to find it i had to find it within seconds because i was doing choruses scratching choruses and or outros and stuff so I had to find these different cuts for different things I was scratching really quickly. So that's how I, I started using stickers. Um, it wrecks your vinyl mind. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I can yeah. imagine. You mentioned higher learning. Take me into that moment specifically, winning that set. That, yeah, again, I was. Uh, it, it was amazing. I didn't expect to to, to win. Um, I was actually. I actually one of one of the the battles. Because they were mini battles, so it was one minute each. Uh, I remember using Rough Styles, one of his lyrics on there, um, who just got turned into sand. That was the lyric. And that was the end of one of the uh, little mixes I did. And I remember Rough Style, I could see it. I could see when he realized it was his vocal I was cutting. He was excited. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, yeah, so we... I, four or five DJs I had the battle um back and forth uh I, I was doing all sorts of crazy techniques to try and win um and then captain was a host and he basically took took the two of us out there and um I, I don't know who was judging and i can't remember who was judging but uh yeah he just put my hand up like in a boxing ring uh, you know, when you win a battle, basically, and yeah. Yeah, I won, and it was—I I couldn't believe it. I didn't—I didn't expect to win because it's, just, it's some really talented and very technical DJs out there. Um, but it, you know, it's not—it's not always just technicality; it's about creativity as well. And that's yeah. one one of my strengths is being creative and doing something different uh, compared to what a lot of people are doing. Andy Cowan, uh, former editor of Hip Hop Connection magazine. 
I think it's fair to say that Keltec and Johnny B might well have flown well under the hip hop connection radar for a while. Lots of acts did in the uh, in the nineties, late eighties, early nineties, simply because it was pre-internet days, and so your only chance, opportunity to get into a mag was to send something in, and we received trillions of demos and and, uh, and so on. Obviously, we couldn't cover them all. We did try and listen to as many, but you know, some would make an impact, some wouldn't. It was a bit of a lottery at the time. Um, still, I do remember, I do recall Johnny B's first album, Am I Still Hip Hop, coming in, and we, and we did cover it, and I think we sort of praised it as being one of the first, you know, proper releases to, to, to come from Cardiff at the time. It was, um, if that was good, I think it was far superseded by his material with Keltec uh, and it really came for four when they released the name in 2004 again actually I, actually I do I vividly recall this one coming in the post partially to do with the sleeve it was a, a hand drawn sort of uh, old school b-boy type sleeve we used to get a lot of these and to be honest um, it wasn't didn't always auger for good contents inside so in, in the case of Johnny being Keltec Steve was 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 a sort of false auger, if you like, because the music inside is absolutely fantastic, really, really, really good, um, and obviously and the rhymes as well. Not uh, so beat wise, I think Caltech's superior beats stand out. You can see he's been a veteran of, of DMCs and and stuff like that, and he's really spent his time in the trenches. Uh, you can see it on tracks like pyroplastic past and the Dreamweaver, really fantastic showcases of his production skills but also it's just, it's just a range of such a such a range of sounds on album he could handle old school boom bap beat juggling scratching and then he's veering off several times across the set into drum and bass you know he's really the full package he's got it all johnny um was a perfect compliment to, to his beats able to ride pretty much anything a great beatboxer on the side anyway but but also you know had a very precise authoritative and clipped mc style you can really hear every word you don't miss a trick and and the best comparison i would say is that he's, he's sort of like a welsh big daddy kane and big daddy kane's one of my top five mcs so that's a, a major compliment um by 2004 I think you know, drum, the drum bass bits aside, I think it's fair to say it was quite an old school sounding sounding records, but none the worse for that by any means. Um, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, I was uh, I had a quick look at uh, Johnny B and Keltec and, and an old thing on ITV Pop Factory, which I think came before the album, uh, and they were really sort of rocking out on that, which is very different to anything on the album. So I, I think that that you know encapsulates how versatile and, and good they were but far far away from being a one-trick pony i did have luck going viral it was basically um i i'd done the i went to bath to do the world dmc championships i'd i played um uh i, I part of my set was using uh the empire strikes back music and scratching a beat over it or uh, do some technique like in the video. So um, it, 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 the crowd went mad, blew up. I'm not, I'm not sure while I finished it, I might have been second in that again, uh, in, in that thing. I can't remember. Um, 
yeah so uh it went it went down so well i thought right i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you what i'll have a laugh now this is there's no youtube or anything about at this stage um on online um i'm gonna video myself i'll go on ebay i'm gonna buy a cheap uh darth vader uh suit and i'm just gonna pretend i'm a dj and uh as, as darth vader and i'm just gonna do the little just that little section of the routine and uh yeah and and record it so i did that it's all like on a re- low budget in a dark bedroom sent it to my mate Stuart and said, Stu, I'm thinking of sticking this on my website. Um, what do you reckon? Is it, is it any good? You know, people going to, you know, like it. And he said, yeah, you've got to stick that up online. I think, it, I think it could be quite popular. So I, I stuck it on my website, which was, it was quite popular at the time. My website I was getting quite a few hits. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm looking at the stats on my website and I'm just getting these massive hits. And it was at the time where it was literally an embedded video and you could right click, save it to uh, whatever you yeah. were watching, um, PC or whatever. Um, Pre YouTube. Yeah, way, yeah, way before YouTube. Way before YouTube, so. right. So, so then um, people are downloading it and sending it. Cause everything, all these videos were sent by your mobile phone and as a text message. That's how, <laughs> it, that's how it worked back then. Right. And then, um, or you would send it by email. And then suddenly I'm getting um, uh, uh, these people start sharing it because I'm getting messages saying, oh, I've seen your video. It's amazing. And and it was nothing else like it at the time. It was completely like, um, you know, it was a completely new idea. There was yeah. DJ Cubert was doing stuff. He, he'd have a mask on and he would do scratching, but it wasn't, it wasn't a remix of a song or anything, you know, it was, and I, it, it, and I was dressed in full gear, you know, it was a proper thing um so yeah uh it, it started it, it just people started contacting me saying i've seen your video i was like well i always seen my video and then suddenly my website is just getting millions of hits it's just wow. it's all the count is going crazy and people are downloading this video um and then it, it, it starts being spread everywhere um and, and, and this is way before it's hard to remember now what it was like back then it was very different to now which is like you know a standard standard thing now sharing viral videos so sure. and so i'm starting getting a lot of um emails and stuff from people saying i've seen that it's amazing and uh whatnot and next thing i know i'm getting an email off starwars.com um one of the managers or girls there had seen the video and they said to me, do you, do you want to do, do you want to do an interview for starwars.com? <laughs> Amazing. You, you must be a big fan if you're doing this remix. And I say, yeah, <laughs> right. you, know, I, I, you know, I love Star Wars, but the music is incredible. You know, it's John Williams. And um, yeah, so uh, I, I did this interview and then I got, and I got contacted by, um, it it goes on over months. Um, then I got contacted by Yahoo.com, who were the main search engine back then, and they said, oh, uh, we, "We've put you on the front news of the website because you know you're uh, uh, it's put it's, you're just a, a an unknown DJ, and suddenly you've got this video that millions of people are watching." I was like, "Yeah, okay, you know." Uh, so I get featured on there. Then 
I get an email to say, oh, the Comic-Con in LA have just played your video live on a massive screen in the, in the Comic-Con. And that's <laughs> bloody hell. Um, and it's, it was my, I was just getting... Like, I was quite active online in forums and stuff, just talking about DJing and music and whatnot. And I was suddenly getting people saying, are you the guy had done the video? Um, you're the same DJ Caltech. And, I was, and suddenly, you know, I could sense that this thing was getting really big. Um then I was contacted by um, a few promoters for um, to do. To, will you DJ at this party and do your set and whatnot? You know, and I try and explain to them like I'm, I'm really more of a turntablist. I can't do a big party few and stuff, but I'll do the routine. So then I went up to Trafalgar Square in London and um, did the routine. They they were promoting Top Trumps, the old card game from back in the day. Okay. They've gone onto mobile phones, and you could play Top Trumps via a mobile phone. And this is like Nokia's now. We're not talking smartphones. We're talking <laughs> the old Nokia things. House bricks. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just like real basic <laughs> stuff. And um, and, and they, they also got the cards as well there, so you could play the traditional version. And it's saying, we, we want you to do your routine because we all love it. And we're talking like people people in offices and stuff you know people just random just mainstream people not not hip-hop heads or anyone dj they're just these are mainstream people now sat in an office in london and they want me to go and play there and i'm there with sir bobby robson's there um you know he's passed now but uh he was there and they happened to have two uh the garrison guys there from uh, go dress up as um in stormtrooper stuff and do official things awesome. so uh, yeah so i got to, i said can you stand there by my side while I do this routine and uh yeah I did a routine then I got asked uh, a network in Belgium then contacted me and said will you do you you will come over to Belgium in Brussels and do um it's a it's a big show it's like it's like the Jonathan Ross show equivalent um for Brussels is massive will you come over and do your routine and we'll pay you to come over and do this uh routine so what was that like uh, what how surreal this was so it was um <laughs> I, I got went there on the uh train and um because i had to take my decks with me they didn't have anything there um i had to take everything with me um i, I go out there i go, go on stage for a rehearsal there's all these guys speaking french all the famous uh talk hosts uh i don't know who they were they weren't very friendly even in the green room um but I had to go into makeup. I'd never been in makeup before. I was sat in front of the mirrors with all the lights around it. And I was like, what's this? Like, just from a just from a, a silly video idea that yeah. I'd come up with. Um, and then, yeah, I go on stage and they're all speaking French. And apparently he's, when we got it translated, he's taking the piss out of me for being so short. And I'm meant to be Darth Vader. And um, <laughs> yeah, so I do the routine. Um, it's, it's quite a tricky routine because it's hard to see. Um, and I... The timing of it is quite difficult. So, um, yeah, I do the I do the thing, and they like it, and the yeah, it goes off well. It's, it's mental. But then, um, then it gets to December, and the maddest thing is, I suddenly, I, I get a load of merchandise from StarWars.com. Anyway, no, what did you get? Um, I got t-shirts and stickers and stuff, like official official things, like yeah. Nice. Um, and then I had a Christmas card then signed from George Lucas himself. No way. It's unbelievable. It's like, I was like, what's this? 
the good thing about the card was um do you know uh, the Millennium Falcon, the window, the yeah. famous shaped window? It's a card which, with that punched out the front and something in the back. So when you open it up, the light shines through the, the window. What's happening? It's Johnny B, Cardiff's longtime MC. Memories of when Caltech star Fadia video went viral. It was incredible to see. All of a sudden, our old website, Caltech and JohnnyB.com, became globally famous. Reason being, on the original video, Keltec had put a link to our website at the end of the performance and the numbers coming through to our website were ridiculous. It caused the server to crash one day. Um, we were getting fans from around the world uh, digging my rhymes too. So um, due to Keltec's video, it, it reached heads that I probably would never have reached. So I was very grateful of this. Uh, this was back in 2005 when it was the early days of the internet. Um, our website guestbook signings were crazy. It went nuts. Um, so much support for our music. Uh, around this time, I, I was heading off to Australia to spend a few months backpacking, which I'd already booked prior to the video. So Keltec decided to capitalise on this, on, on the success of the video, and he set up DJKeltec.com and started making a solo al album, which... Um, he he cracked on with while I was on my travels but yeah the album was well received I had a few features myself which I was proud to be a part of but yeah wicked times there's a period after this where you start to lean into futuristic themes and you're pulling inspiration from science fiction what are your memories of recording Caltech Strikes Back and being commissioned for the War of the World soundtrack yeah because um the thing was, I'd, I'd made it into a routine. It was a short one minute and a half, quick routine. And then I decided I wanted to do a scratch album because I was listening to a guy called D Styles, who was a turntablist, but he brought out an album called Phantasmagoria. And and it was all, it was, every track was made up of scratch techniques. And that to me was in, inspirational. I thought, my God, this is incredible what he's done here. Um and so I thought, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this Strike Back album um, with, as a solo album, basically. Um, and every track is going to be made up of me scratching. So I scratched the, the beat in the background, then I scratched the bass line and any melodies or any cuts over the top when you make, make a track. Um, and so I, I did that and I was I was also involved in a bit of uh, uh, my sampler and my MIDI keyboard and things with it so basically because it was only a little routine this um, the strike back album I had to make a full track of it and that became quite difficult because like I've made I've, I've almost done a song with it. this little routine is the, the whole song basically in, in in one and a half minutes how do I pad this out now for to make it into a full track for three minutes so that was quite tricky. So I worked on that for a long, long time. Then did the rest of the tracks. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, I worked on I worked on that album for ages, and I also got uh, Johnny involved with some tracks and the Wonky uh, Wax Boys. Knobs uh, uh, nuts. Well. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. He is. Um, yeah, he features on the track and Rough Styles as well. Yeah, it was. I was really proud of this album as well because um, I put so much work into it. It was. It was. A, it was difficult technically to pull off because um, because of the nature of making tracks with turntables, basically. Um, yeah, but it, it got. Um, 
it, it got quite good reviews that album, and it still sells, does quite well today. Still got a lot of uh, people buying it, which is quite nice. A lot of my instrumentals, because of the because of the video, I got contacted by a company in America that were at the time quite cutting edge, and they were getting tracks to um, in in the sync. It's called sync in, where you get the track used in a TV program. Right. So uh, he he had seen my videos and said, oh, "I love your videos and stuff." Um, and he said, I've seen your video on stupidvideos.com, which was like the first YouTube type thing where they were putting like funny home movies, like you've been framed or whatever. But they put, they'd featured my star, uh, the strike back, uh, uh, video on there. And, um, that was, that's what was helping it go viral. So he had seen it and he said, Oh, have you got any, you've got any beats you've made instrumentals? They were calling them back then, not beats, but, um, you've got any, got any, got any instrumentals? Um, cause I can get them on MTV. So I was like, oh, okay, um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you some stuff. And before I know it, like this, my stuff is being used as like quick background music in um, like Pimp My Ride and all these things, <laughs> all these like big, big shows, um, which were, I think Dreamweaver was one of them, yeah. uh, possibly. Uh, yeah, load, loads of stuff um, was getting used. And it's like, I, I never even knew this was a thing where you could make music at home and in the studio and it get used on TV. This is still like 2004, five-ish, or maybe six, really early days, you know. Um, but then, yeah, so um, that, that I, I thought, right, people were contacting me after this video as well and um, saying, oh, do, do, do another video, do another video, because people always want more when you do something good. And, um, and I, I, as a kid, I've always listened to War of the Worlds, um, the musical by Jeff Wayne. Um, it was quite scary back then. It's like a narrated story with really amazing music. And um, so I thought, I'll tell you what, I know, I know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to remix War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, the film had just come out with Tom Cruise. So that that will give you a date whatever, whenever that come out. Um, and so I thought, right, back on eBay, let's get, um, let's get an alien suit. And um, <laughs> as you do, yeah, as you do, and uh, and I thought, right, I'm gonna let, let's take it up and let's take it up a notch now, a bit better than what I did before filming on just a black background. I'm going to, um, uh, I, I, I went on the website, the World of Worlds films had just dropped, they had this like animated crash site in the in the background of the website, so I, I, I ripped it out, I think it was uh like some animation video or whatever i took it out there um off their website um borrowed it i mean and um put a green screen up in the back of my bedroom projected the crash site on the back and then puts uh put set up my decks and then puts um uh like bits and bobs in the front so it, it sort of it's a, like a film trick it is to give you sort of make it look like you're part of the scene um yeah and then come up with a routine which was really difficult it took a lot of takes this one did much more than the first one because first one was just more of a laugh you know it's like oh let's just do this it was no there was no conscious thought that it may get popular right how um, many takes how many takes are you talking oh, we're talking 50 or 60 takes for the wow. war of the worlds one because the routine was so precisely timed i had to 
again going back to this thing with records you've got to you've got to find your you've got to find the the cut you want on that vinyl within seconds and i had to go over to the side with a stupid alien suit on i had, I had lights on me this time i sweat was dripping in my eyes behind the mask because <laughs> um, it was cheap plastic it was a cheap plastic sort of outfit um i couldn't see anything the little lenses in the front were misting up um and i had to go to my stack of records on the left bring it over quickly get the cut change the record to keep it flowing into in, into the in, you know in, in a coherent song like um mix and so uh yeah so um i did, did that got a take i was happy with then stuck it online and because of the success of the first video um it just i, I don't know how but it just become popular again I'm not sure if YouTube had just started then. I'm not sure if I uploaded it to there because they were about mm. 2005, so it could have been the same time they popped on the scene. Um, but then, yeah, it got popular. And I was getting a lot of... You get these diehard fans that complain a bit as well about, um, oh, he's you know he's ruining the music. It's terrible and all that. But the majority of people were loving it. You know, they thought they could see the com- comedy side of it. You know, I'm just having a laugh. Um so did that, and then next thing I know, Jeff Wayne, the musical writer of the track, his manager contacts me, um, said, oh, you know, I like your video. You, you know, we, we didn't give you permission to use it. And I, I sort of said, like, it's, it's, I'm just having a laugh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to copyright anything or whatnot. You know, he was really cool. Right. He, was, he had no problems. He was just saying, you know, oh, you by the way, you didn't have permission to do that. Sure. It's like, you know, I said, I know I'm just having a laugh. And it's like, I said, you know, it's quite, it's, it's, I'm just, just, I'm going to laugh anyway. And he, and he said, um, he said, oh, we're working on an album, um, a second remix album. Would you be interested in doing a track, a remix in the track for us? And I was like, I would be interested. Yeah, of course <laughs> I am. Um, yeah. So I ended up doing that and it got released on Sony. So that was, uh, that, incredible. That was, that was the biggest label I've ever had a release on. I can believe it. Your music's been featured in so many different places and platforms from BBC to MTV to HHC to Discovery Channel, all the way to genre yeah. films. Do is is there I was wondering, is there a different entry point people have to your career that ever surprises you? Um you come up with some good questions, you do. It's always <laughs> always always uh, uh it's a really good question. Um, it, it, with me getting stuff in there, it, it was pure luck and timing, which most things are in in life. Um, it, there, there was no like um, sort of now. There are com- publishers and companies and libraries you can actually contact and put your stuff with them, and they will, uh, you know, put um, your music in shows and that. But for Back then, it, it was just pure luck, basically, that um, uh, that I, I, I had the right timing and my stuff got featured everywhere. It helped that, that that video was so big because the people making the shows had seen the video. Um, they were like, oh, I know, I know that, because it's almost like the internet was a smaller place then mm. and, and people were sending stuff via mobiles and um, via email. So it felt like the world was smaller. And so everyone had seen the video. That's what it felt like. Mm. Like 
it's strange because even even now in it was 2021 uh, it's 2022 now i know but 2021 i go into a drum shop in cardiff and i'm chatting to um one of the hip-hop drummers there i i said what type of drumming do you do in hip-hop i said oh no way and i you know i used to do that and i i and there's a guy standing behind me, some random guy I don't know, and and he he, he said uh, I said oh, I, I I said I used to DJ. I said I had a viral video once back back twenty odd years ago, whatever, oh, fifteen years ago, whatever it was, um, and I was scratching this uh, Darth Vader remix, and a guy behind me said, oh, and you did the Water Worlds one as well, didn't you? Oh, and I'm like this random guy behind me, <laughs> and uh, it was like this mad. It's mad how big that video got. Um, yeah, and what door, what doors it opens for you once you get something like that. So, yeah, so these people, had all these producers of these shows were familiar with the video, so my stuff was getting used all the time. They wanted, because I was almost a bit trendy to use, you know, it got like that. 